Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. COVID-19 numbers continue to decline across California, and Governor Gavin Newsom is optimistic that some parts of the state will be able to lift business restrictions as early as next week. About 3.5 percent of people being tested for coronavirus are getting back positive results, a sharp drop from numbers we saw during the most recent surge. The number of people in hospitals and intensive care units has also been steadily declining. A handful of rural counties in Northern California have already moved to a less restrictive tier when it comes to reopening, and state data shows at least five others are headed in that direction. Well, yesterday, California opened two new mass vaccination sites with help from the federal government, part of a goal to open 100 sites in 100 days nationwide. KQED's Leslie McClurk explains. Parking lots on the Cal State University campus in Los Angeles and the Oakland Alameda Coliseum are now filled with trailers and tents. Both sites have the capacity to vaccinate up to 6,000 people per day through both drive through and walk-up appointments. However, Governor Gavin Newsom said only about half that many doses are on tap. Supplies the issue. That's the constraint. Two of the state's other large vac sites, Moscone Center and Dodger Stadium, had to temporarily close recently when supply dwindled. Yet the governor says it still makes sense to expand infrastructure. He wants the state to be ready when the spigot of supply starts flowing. The state has administered about 6 million vaccines so far. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. California voters will get a ballot in the mail for any election this year under a bill heading to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk after passing the legislature Tuesday. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati has more. All voters were mailed a ballot last year to avoid spreading the coronavirus at the polls. Assemblyman Mark Berman, a Democrat from the Bay Area, says it's still necessary. This bill recognizes that the pandemic has not gone away. Republicans, including Orange County Assemblyman Stephen Choi, argue that sending ballots to all voters was supposed to be a one-time thing. We were told this universal vote by mail process was necessary for the 2020 general election for safety reasons. Two special elections are scheduled for 2021, and an effort to recall Governor Newsom could also make it to the ballot this year. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Now to an investigation by our partners at CAP Radio in Sacramento, which finds that during the pandemic, some contributors to Governor Newsom also happen to be corporations that have secured valuable no-bid contracts with the state. Those are contracts that aren't put through a competitive bidding process. Earlier, I spoke with CAP Radio's Scott Rod about his reporting. Well, frankly, there's a lot of money flowing from the state to companies to help them respond to 
this um, you know unprecedented uh, situation that the state finds itself in. And you know, any time that there are no bid contracts um, being handed out to companies, you know that deserves some scrutiny and it'll raise questions. And immediately, I thought about looking at and comparing how those contracts may or may not have lined up with contributions to Governor Newsom. So, Scott, what's an example of a company that both secured one of these no-bid contracts and is also a Newsom contributor? United Health, which is a large healthcare company, in December of 2019, they contributed $31,000 to Newsom's re-election campaign. Just a few months later, in April 2020, a subsidiary of the company received a $100 million no-bid contract to expand testing for COVID-19 in California. That contract was later increased to $177 million. Uh, in, In the coming months, the company also received over $300 million in contracts through an expedited bidding process that had some elements of competitive bidding. And then in December, uh, just a few months ago, the company contributed $31,000 to Newsom's campaign directly and another $100,000 to Newsom's ballot measure committee. And you've reached out to the governor's office and the companies in your story. What response have you gotten to your reporting so far? So it's worth saying that these companies and Newsom deny any sort of wrongdoing here, deny that it was in any way meant to influence uh, the state's contracting. But government ethics people say even though there isn't evidence of wrongdoing or quid pro quos, it still raises concerns. And I spoke to one government ethics expert, Bob Stern. He's the former general counsel for the Fair Political Practices Commission. And this is what he had to say. I really think that uh, the governor has a tin ear in terms of receiving uh, huge campaign contributions and providing sole source contracts for corporations that were giving him these contributions. I assume that he thought nobody would do any research on this, that nobody would look at it, and that nobody would care. But I care. People want to make sure the governor and the state are making decisions that are solely based on the merits as opposed to any indication that it might be based on campaign contributions coming in. What did Governor Newsom's office have to say to that? So again, they they claim that there's no wrongdoing here. Um, and I got a, I received a statement from the governor's office, and I'm going to read part of it uh, verbatim. They said, quote, the governor's administration made the decision to enter into all contracts related to the COVID-19 response based on the best interests of the state and protecting the health and welfare of all our residents. And, you know, the governor's office said they needed to work quickly to acquire this equipment um, and to stand up life-saving services at the start of the pandemic and, and really throughout, you know, the pandemic over the last roughly year or so. And they said political contributions did not factor into that decision making at all. Well, your reporting obviously comes as Governor Newsom is facing a recall effort that is, from what we can tell, gaining traction. And we appreciate your reporting. Thank you, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on. That was Scott Rod, who's a reporter with CAP Radio in Sacramento. Staying in Sacramento, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez is introducing a bill to protect warehouse workers for companies like Amazon from unsafe quotas and productivity standards. KQED's Sam Harnett reports. During the pandemic, Amazon's stock price has risen some 65 percent, helping make $70 billion for Jeff Bezos alone. It's a different story for warehouse workers, whose every movement is tracked. They can be fired for failing to collect, box, and ship enough orders fast enough. 
The new law, AB 701, would require employers to disclose these quotas to the workers. It would also prevent workers from being fired for failing to meet a quota that violates state health and safety laws. No comment yet from Amazon. Company records show its workers are injured on the job at double the average rate of the general warehousing industry. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett. The Sonoma County Sheriff's commitment to enforcing public health orders is under scrutiny after public records revealed that the department has issued no citations for violations of public health orders since last summer. Kevin Fixler with the Santa Rosa Press Democrat has been reporting on a church in violation of county health orders and the discrepancy between a sheriff's deputy's report and code enforcement records. So you have two county agencies supposed to be partnered on this enforcement and in communication about warnings and potential violations, and it seemed clear that they they were not. This has now led to an internal affairs investigation of this deputy because, again, his narrative was much different. He claimed that it was just up to 15 people who were all outdoors and abiding by COVID-19 compliance guidelines, whereas the Code Enforcement Department documented well over 100 people, many without masks, Um, singing, things that uh, even a recent Supreme Court ruling doesn't permit. Is this a a systemic problem or is this an isolated incident? Uh, There are questions that are are still out there and, and probably deserve some answers. That was Kevin Fixler of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. He says that the Sonoma County Board of Supervisors has already removed the bulk of enforcement duties from Sheriff Mark Essex's department. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. California's early warning system for earthquakes is expanding to Oregon and Washington, completing a West Coast rollout before summer. The ShakeAlert system uses a network of sensors that detect the start of an earthquake and calculates magnitude, location, and the expected amount of shaking. It sends the information in real time to cell phones and to the Internet. The information moves so quickly that people may have valuable seconds to protect themselves before shaking arrives, trains can be slowed, and industrial processes stopped. The system has been enabled in California since October of 2019 and will start delivering alerts to wireless devices in Oregon and Washington in the coming weeks. Millions of Texans remain without power as rolling blackouts continue amid a massive winter storm there. It's a situation Californians know well. In August, our state grid operator called for the state's first rolling blackouts in two decades. For more on the parallels, I'm joined by former CPUC President Loretta Lynch and reliability expert Rick Humphreys. Good morning. Thank you for having us, Lily. Good morning. Good morning to you. So, 
given what's going on in Texas right now and what happened to us here in California last summer, what are we learning about the state of our nation's electric grid? I mean, are we ready for, for example, climate change, which seems to be playing a real role here? Lily, I would say this is not about climate change. If it were, all the other states would be having the problems that Texas has. What this is about is the fact that both Texas and California turned their electricity grids over to private corporations and allow them to run those grids. And those grid operators have run them amok. They have allowed the companies that profit from those grids to put profits over people. So when you take a look at the comparison, California and Texas went the farthest to deregulate their electricity systems. And now we're paying the price because we were penny-wise in Texas, and now they're pound-foolish because they did not invest in maintenance and operations, just as California has allowed maintenance and operations to fall by the wayside. And speaking of price, Rick, you have spent weeks trying to calculate the costs of our rolling blackouts in August here in California. It's been hard to get those numbers from CalISO, the independent state operator of the grid. But you have calculated it. How much worse is it going to be in Texas? Well, for California, we can, we can get part of the answer fairly easily, and that's from the day-ahead market. And so using just that portion of the cost, I calculated that the roughly three weeks of late August and first week of September, ratepayers in California paid an excess cost of about $1.35 billion. By comparison, the entire year's worth of electricity in 2019 was about $8.8 billion. And those are both at wholesale. Now, by comparison, we can look at what's going on in Texas And just a simple calculation uh, shows that the poor folks in Texas are going to be paying uh, tens of billions of dollars. And there is a lot of blame being placed on renewables, including wind resources. And Loretta, we saw a really similar narrative play out here in California last summer, right? So what we know in California is that the renewables got us through. It was the gas plants that were not producing in California, and it was the grid operator that was allowing exports on the hottest day of the century. Similarly, in Texas, the wind power was operating at better than expectation, and the Texas grid operator admitted it was the gas plants that froze. Let's be real clear. This is about private corporations who operate Texas and California's grids allowing the power plant operators not to maintain their power plants. So we know that today, windmills are working in Minnesota and in Wisconsin and in Norway, and they're not working in Texas because the grid operator did not make them put heaters near the mechanical parts that would allow them to turn. So Mm -hmm. windmills froze in Texas because they lacked heating elements because the Texas grid operator has allowed minimal investment for maximum short-term gain. And you made a really important point right there as well about California actually exporting energy during the rolling blackouts. I feel like that point has gotten somewhat lost um, in the postmortem. And I just wonder, you know, we just had the CPUC, uh, the state utility regulator, approve more reliance on fossil fuels just last week. Um, Some of these really important points are getting lost. Well, 
sadly, California cannot buy their way out of market problems because there's a hole in the bucket. As long as our grid operator allows exports to other states on hot days, you cannot buy enough power to counteract those exports. We have to stop the exports. And as long as both the grid operator and the PUC will not enforce maintenance and operation standards for our power plants, then the power plants are going to underperform just like they did in Texas, and we won't have enough power. We won't have the power we need to count on. I think it'd be helpful to put a a little context in this uh, for folks in California. The Texas grid is a little bit larger in terms of electricity than California. At peak, California's about 50 gigawatts. Texas is about 70 gigawatts. As we speak, Texas has lost uh, almost 30 gigawatts of power, and only a small portion of that is is wind. So this narrative that some folks are are constructing that that renewables and wind are to blame is completely false. And I wish people would take a look at the data and uh, inject some truth into the discussion. All right. Rick Humphreys and Loretta Lynch, thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you, Lily. Thank you, Lily. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, February 17th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.